Part 6. Snot Rockets in Vegas I wasn't honest in this second attempt at school. The plan was to take as many music classes as they offered while looking for a new band. When the time came to apply and build my class schedule, I was rejected on the grounds of academic probation. I went and spoke with admissions and was allowed to take classes with the caveat that I'd maintain a 3.0 GPA and I'd have to work with a counselor, so I made an appointment the same day. I told the counselor what I was interested in, and he built a path toward an associate of arts degree with an emphasis on music. He also showed me how those courses could transfer to a four-year bachelor's degree in music and university. My interest in teaching and my love of music could be combined into one exciting career as a music teacher. I couldn't believe I hadn't known about this option before. The idea still seemed so foreign and unachievable. I dismissed the idea and decided to focus on one semester at a time. The first thing I had to do was audition for the music program. This wasn't music school, this was an associate of arts degree with all music electives. The audition was relatively mild, but I stressed about it regardless. I looked up the basics of reading sheet music, memorized the lines on a clef, and prepared as best I could by doing a crash course in scales on the internet. I was good with my instrument but used my ear, not theory. I didn't even know the names of the chords I was playing. I barely tested high enough to be accepted, so I wasn't able to skip any prerequisites. My next semester was going to be the counselor suggested English 101 and Geology plus Music Appreciation and Jazz Ensemble. I immediately had a sense of pride in the school. Up to this point, school was a given. It was something I had to do. To go, all you had to do was pay for it, but now I was in a special program you had to test into, and it felt exceptional. The idea of riding this thing to a music school at an actual university started to take root, and I got excited about school for the first time in my life. I was going to keep that 3.0 GPA, and I was going to accomplish the vague college experience you required of me. The first person I wanted to tell was my brother. I remember the night in Vegas, the day of your second wedding. My brother and I went out to gamble, a short-lived experience when he convinced me to bet everything we had on black. The what-if surge overwhelmed me, and I did as instructed. The ball bounced around quickly and then cut our evening short as it came to rest on red. We made our way to the bar before heading back to the room. Shannon wasn't a drinker, he often warned me how alcoholism ran in our family, and then he'd name off the list of aunts and uncles he now refused to talk to because they were so worthless. I agreed with the list mostly, but his hatred for Uncle Whitey always hurt my feelings. Whitey was gentle and loved Marilyn Monroe. I remember every holiday we spent in Georgia visiting family, and Whitey would be in his small room off the garage of Grandma's house. I would run down to see him, and he'd be listening to music or playing his guitar. One Christmas, I ran to his room, and he seemed genuinely surprised to see me. I could tell he didn't know we were coming that year. He gave me my unwrapped present, a cassette tape that he plucked from the table next to where we were sitting. I couldn't name anything from the band off the top of my head, but I knew I had heard the name Pink Floyd before. He popped it in and fast-forwarded it to money. It would be years before I knew just how cool that song is or that it's in seven-eighths time, but I could tell immediately that it would be my favorite Christmas gift that year. Whitey didn't know the names of his chords either, but he loved to hear me play the same songs every year that we visited him. I had written the first couple bars to a new song and was stuck creatively on where to go next. We sat in his room for hours as I would play the first few notes of what I had written and then insert something new. He'd say yes or no to the few note run and then suggest I go higher or lower. We wrote the song this way, note by note, hour by hour. By the time we left that year, the piece was almost finished. I just had to get my fingers to do what we had written down in basic tablature. This is that song.
kept working on that song and finally mastered it, added a bridge, and was anxious to show Whitey the final product. Whitey had battled alcoholism for years, and his unhealthy lifestyle would lead to a heart attack that same year. I played the song we had written together for him, in his empty room, alone, on the day of his funeral. Losing the chance to share that song with him caused my blood to curdle every time Shannon would use him as the example of where alcohol is and gets you. Maybe if my brother ever shared a genuine moment with someone, he'd feel the pain of loss and not just boil everyone down to their mistakes. As the night in Vegas was nearing its end, Shannon had barely drunk, but I was thoroughly intoxicated. We got to the bar, which was too loud and dark. We pushed through dozens of people half dancing, leaning in close to each other's ears trying to hold conversations over the bombardment of repetitive thumping bass. Everything in the bar was a shade of dark purple or black with occasional bright blue lights. The bar was in the center of the room and made a ring around the center stage. We found seats just as the male bartender climbed onto the stage and began pouring shots directly from the bottle into women's open mouths, like baby birds awaiting regurgitated worms. Ready to party and eager to make my brother laugh, I elbowed my way past the first baby bird and received a proper splashing of vodka. He wasn't laughing when I turned around, he looked embarrassed, and I had that familiar feeling of thinking we were bonding when, in reality, I was just making a fool of myself. Sensing his discomfort and mild annoyance, we left soon after and headed to the room. We hadn't been out long, but I could tell he had enough excitement. I had created the expectation in my mind that we would have bonded throughout the night, and I would have brought up music school during breakfast, but the opportunity for that was quickly fading, and I would need to tell him now. We had gotten comfortable in our beds, and the TV was on, mainly to provide light in the darkened room. I told him I had gotten into the music program and was genuinely excited about school for the first time. I recited the path to bachelors my counselor had described and explained how I wanted to be a music teacher. I had held this information in secrecy, waiting for the perfect opportunity to tell him. It felt like a gift you get someone when you know it's exactly what they wanted. I told him everything, and then I waited as I watched him unwrap the perfect gift I had worked so hard to prepare. That's stupid. He said, discarding the wrapper of my metaphorical gift and tossing it into the proverbial trash, then. You should be an accountant instead. I nervously laughed it off. This was a cruel joke, but it was probably just a joke. I mean, why would I ever be an accountant? Is there anything about my personality that screams accountant? The longer the joke went on, the angrier I grew as he continued to describe the benefits of accounting in further detail. It wasn't pure anger, though. I wanted to be angry. I wanted to be pissed off, and I wanted to punch him in his stupid face, but what I felt wasn't just anger. I was furious, sure, but I was far more disappointed than angry. I was frustrated with myself for having come up with such a stupid plan that wasn't good enough. The excitement I felt for the upcoming school year turned into a familiar shame, and my anger morphed into embarrassment. I was irritated with myself, but I was also discouraged that he didn't get it. I didn't know what to do, but I was far too drunk to let his slight go. I started hysterically crying and laughing as I struggled to attach the correct response to emotion. Accounting didn't fit who I was as a person. I had grown up in a generation that had been lied to. We were told we could grow up to be anything we wanted, only to grow up and be told we had to be accountants. Accounting also represented the fact that I would never be happy. If I succeeded as a music teacher, I would have failed my family, but if I succeeded as an accountant, I'd be failing myself. Music school wouldn't be good enough, but it was my only plan and felt attainable. I was completely taken off guard. I couldn't fathom the prospect of my teaching children as being anything other than admirable. The vagueness of just go to college became and then become an accountant. 
The bar had moved radically, and it didn't feel fair. We wrestled onto his bed as I yelled at him. I continued laughing through the tears, trying to keep a playfulness to my outburst while also attempting to separate myself from the reality that this was even happening. I could see in his eyes that he was overwhelmed by my overly dramatic response, and I knew he wrote it off as me just being drunk. He wasn't wrong. My inability to control how I reacted was mainly because I was drunk, but the pain I felt was genuine. He shouldn't have written me off, but I was admittedly irrational. He tried to get me to stop and calm down, but I was blinded by drunken rage, and my nose began to run as I continued to cry. He kept me at arm's length, and a long strand of snot began falling from my nose. I blew a snot rocket onto his chest, and he finally pushed me aside and left the hotel room, leaving me alone with my thoughts again. I was in such a dark place at that time, but the idea of being a trained musician became a life-saving rope at the edge of the pit. I would use that rope to climb out of my depression and end my alcoholism for good. That night I had given my brother the other end of that rope and had every expectation that he would help pull me out. I wasn't sure what it would look like, but I anticipated it would be congratulatory and encouraging. Instead, it felt like he looked me straight in the eyes and tossed that rope back into the pit. I again felt misunderstood and alone. First, I considered dropping out of school again. I was sure as shit not inspired to change my major to accounting. I'd rather suffer through real estate classes again before I stepped foot into an accounting class. Music school had now ceased to be the missing puzzle piece of scholastic compromise I was searching so desperately to find that would make you and Shannon proud. Then I considered going for it and proving him wrong. I assume his intention wasn't to hurt me, I bet he genuinely thought I should be an accountant. The career seemed more guaranteed to provide a reasonable income and job security. Like you, he's worked in jobs he hates his entire life, but they paid well. Favoring stability over happiness seems like a wasted life to me. You arrive at your funeral in a hearse, not a U-Haul. I imagine that whenever he told me something I wanted was stupid, he sincerely felt it was unwise. Likely, he legitimately wanted me to be better. This was his way of trying to help me achieve something great. In some ways, he succeeded. I started to think everything I wanted was stupid, and I wanted to improve, but every time I tried, it still wasn't good enough for him. His attempts to motivate me this way would work temporarily, but unfortunately, the motivational force of shame never lasts very long. Putting me down every chance he got would sometimes put a chip on my shoulder and get me to try harder, but when things got tough, I'd give up. When he told me I couldn't do something, my pride would light the fire to try hard. I heard my voice when trying new things. I'd tell myself I could do it, and I excelled at finding creative solutions. His words were never the motivation to work hard. His words didn't come to mind until the going got tough. If I weren't catching on quickly, I'd hear his voice reminding me I'd never be as good as he was at anything. That chip on my shoulder would be replaced with a heavy heart, and I'd remember I was wasting everyone's time again. Music school ended up being extraordinarily more difficult than I imagined. As I struggled to keep up with people far more prepared than I was, it was Shannon's voice from the hotel in Vegas that would remind me why I should give up. It became just another thing to silence with alcohol. Fifteen years later, his daughter is preparing to finish high school and will be majoring in accounting. I often wonder what her music school equivalent is. My niece and I don't have the relationship I wish we did. I felt like Shannon kept me from his kids. My wife and I once drove 18 hours out of state to visit him and the kids. He knew for months I was coming, and we had been in touch several times in the days leading up to my trip there, but as I was coming into town, he cancelled on me. He said they were busy. His kids had some stuff going on, and it wasn't a good time. I essentially wouldn't take no for an answer, and we came anyway. He took us to the Noodle Company, 
told my wife a bunch of horrible things about our mom whom she had never met, and then we left. I stopped calling as much after that because I felt like I was intruding on his life, and I didn't feel welcome. I was starting to realize that my cold relationship with my niece was likely due to me being her version of Uncle Whitey. I had become the example Shannon would use to show his kids what happens when alcohol ruins your life. Without the opportunity to bond over something we both loved, like Pink Floyd, I became a tragic family member that made her feel uncomfortable. I eventually fell asleep back at the hotel in Vegas, but I had made the commitment to myself that I would go to school the following semester as I had planned. I had lost the excitement I brought with me to Vegas, but I was ready to start taking things more seriously. The idea of being a schoolteacher seemed silly now, but figuring out my instrument more fully felt like a welcome distraction. I also knew you'd be happy I was just going to college. I knew school would be a challenge, but I welcomed it and started mentally preparing myself for the commitment I knew it would take. I didn't think I would hit the limits of my ability in music within the first day of class. Music School, Chapter 4, Part 1, The Hick from French Lick. I had signed up for Jazz Ensemble as a guitarist and figured I could play anything if I were able to play jazz. I wasn't deeply familiar with the genre, but it represented the highest level attainable for musical skill and improvisation. On the first day of class, I walked into a large room where someone had pushed chairs into a large semi-circle around a black grand piano. I was grinning year to year as I imagined the music I would learn to play in that room. There were horn players, wind instruments, a drummer, and a pianist, all milling about, talking, or warming up. I waited by the yellow lacquered tweed guitar amplifier left out for me, wondering how many guitarists would be in the class. Our professor walked into the room at the scheduled start of class and handed out sheet music as he introduced himself. He then had us all introduce ourselves, starting from the far left side of the semicircle. My new band had 15 people, and everyone seemed eager to play. After the introductions, our professor quickly counted off a 1, 2, 3, 4. The horns blared to life as the piano started chopping away at the keys, stringing together a complex chord progression. It was unlike anything I had ever heard. The drums were fast but subtle as the sticks lightly bounced across the snare. I stared vacantly at the sheet music in front of me, not knowing what to do or where we were in the song. My page didn't even have notes written on it, just the name of the song and a suggested chord progression that sat above the lines of the staff. With horror, I slowly realized they must have been meant as a placeholder for each bar and left blank for taking notes. I had the full freedom of musical expression and creativity, but without the knowledge or skill to do anything with it. As the song ended, I realized we wouldn't be learning how to play jazz in this class, we were supposed to know already. The class ended, and my professor stopped by to ask why I hadn't played during class. I confessed that I had no idea what was going on, couldn't read sheet music, rarely ever listened to jazz, and didn't know the names of my chords. He didn't seem very empathetic to my situation. He told me that as a saxophone player, he wouldn't be able to help me with guitar. He reminded me of the deadline to drop the class and wished me luck as he walked out of the room. Being on the extremely thin ice of academic probation, I couldn't drop any classes. Whether I dropped or failed, I would have been kicked out of school either way. I went home and tried to find the old jazz standard we had played. I figured I could find tablature somewhere or learn it on my own. I found a black and white video of it on the internet. There wasn't even a guitar in the sum. 
I pulled out the blank sheet music with the chord names written above each measure. There were a few chord names I recognized. I knew some of the fundamental open chord majors and minors, but this song was full of chords that also had 6, 7, 9, or 13 written after the name. It meant nothing to me. I had music books for Neil Young and the Beatles that I started flipping through, hoping to find a description of the more complicated chords. Out of the complete Beatles anthology, I found less than half of the chords from just one jazz standard. I wrote down every chord I could find in my notebook. I started by drawing a box with five columns and four rows. The lines represented the strings on my guitar as they intersected each fret. On each of the six vertical lines, I would place a number representing the finger I would use to make each chord and then wrote its name below it. I had to find a chord book to learn the more complicated jazz chords, but soon each of the songs we were assigned had a mess of chord boxes written all over it. I didn't know what codas were, so I would draw arrows showing where the song was going and when to go back to previous sections. Two days later, I showed up at the next class, and my professor ignored me. I didn't even sit with the group. I sat on the side of the room and tried to see if I could follow along, not on guitar, just visually, as I scanned the charts with my eyes. I made more notes and went back home to practice the chords more. I had been playing guitar for years, so my fingers could make the jumps to each chord, even those that felt unfamiliar and awkward. It wasn't easy to memorize them all, but the chord boxes helped. I struggled to keep up with the band because the songs jumped through each chord changed so quickly, and I was strumming them like a folk song, not jazz. By the third week, I had rejoined the group but kept my volume low. It was terrible, but I was technically playing along. After the first couple of songs my professor walked by and looked at my sheet music. A pit in my stomach grew as I assumed I had been playing so poorly that he was looking to see if I had been playing the wrong song. When he saw I covered the sheet entirely in written notes, arrows, and boxes, he frowned with his eyebrows raised and nodded his approval. Then he told me to stop playing along. He gave me a song to listen to, finally one with guitar. He told me to focus on chopping the chords to the beat instead of strumming. The silence between chords would allow more room for the other instruments and would likely be easier to follow. He seemed warily impressed, especially since the official drop deadline had passed. He worked with me more and more over the coming months, but he kept me out of every concert they played. I was progressing faster than he expected, but I was still light years away from anything anyone could call jazz. We had a major concert coming up, our second to last of the semester, and one that would follow an all-professors band from other schools led by a guest musician. I was definitely not allowed to play in this one either, but my instructor invited me to the all-professors band rehearsal the night before the show. I sat in the audience a few rows back, eye level with the stage. I was the only person in the audience, and I got a private concert with some of the best jazz professors in the area. The music was complex, and each member confidently placed every note with nothing going to waste. They didn't sound anything like our class. I thought the men and women in my ensemble were otherworldly. These people were masters. It was startlingly impressive to see some people that had never played together gathering at the center of the stage and playing a perfect 30-minute set as though they had been playing together for years. When they finished, a tall man who vaguely looked like Larry Bird stood and clapped as he walked to the front of center stage. I could barely hear him, but he appeared to be giving notes to each professor. The professor he spoke with would play back to him, he'd say something else, and then you'd see recognition cross their face as they nodded and wrote something down on the sheet in front of them. I assumed their notes looked much cleaner and were far fewer than mine were. Larry then counted out the beat, 
and the band jumped back to life. He made minor corrections with hand gestures to specific people as the band continued playing. Then, as the song wrapped around on a theme that I recognized as the likely chorus, Larry Legend entered a blazingly fast and complex trombone solo. I realized my knowledge of jazz proficiency and the limits of ability had increased from the young people in my class, to the professor's band, and then to whoever this was. When they finished, my professor motioned me on stage and handed me a CD with Larry on the cover. He then told me to talk to him. I don't know if my professor arranged this for me or if Larry recognized me as the youngest and only non-instrumented person in the room, but he pulled me aside and had me sit next to him on the piano. He played the piano beautifully and strung together chord combinations in ways I couldn't understand. Instead of resolving back to the chord he had started, he'd play a large two-handed chord full of complex emotion that would modulate the key, providing him space to continue building the story. Instead of a repetitive 12-bar blues, he just kept expanding the progression ever longer until it finally did resolve, excruciatingly beautiful yet full of sorrow. I recognized my mouth had been hanging open, so I closed it. Well, what's your instrument? He asked, as he half turned to look me in the eyes. I'm a guitar player, but I'm new to jazz. I also love to play piano, bass, and drums, and I want to learn to play everything. I could hear the awkwardness of newly brewing fandom in my voice. Hmm, I see. He said, his voice sounding vaguely like Woody Allen. I love the piano. In some ways, it's my favorite instrument. You're very good at playing it, I interrupted. Thank you, but I can never do what I did tonight with this band on the piano. I'm nowhere good enough to be a piano player. I couldn't tell if he was being humble or if I was just in denial about how far away I was from ever being considered any good. He continued, I had to decide if I wanted to be good at piano or great at trombone. So I picked trombone. He grabbed the CD that I had placed between us on the bench. He signed it, got up gingerly, and then squeezed my shoulder before walking away. Thank you, I called after him. He had written his signature in the bottom right corner of the cover. Below his name, he wrote, Keep practicing. The longer I thought about his words, their meaning grew. On the way to the venue that night, my professor had given me the backstory of Larry and told me he was considered the greatest trombone player at the time and that he had been nominated for multiple Grammy Awards. When Larry said he had to choose, he was choosing to be the best. He meant you could only be great at something if you focused all your attention on it. I needed to pick a single instrument and then dedicate myself to it. It was great advice, but music was never so granular to me. I could learn to be content with being mediocre on several instruments. It could also serve as a convenient excuse for why I wasn't a great guitar player. I started thinking of myself as a composer and left the technicality of playing to those with the gift. I was surprised I could be so starstruck by someone I didn't know existed a week prior, but I was swimming in the knowledge that I had just been part of something special. It turned out that my professor had known Larry personally, and he was the one that had put this entire gig together. I patiently waited as he said his goodbyes to everyone and then thanked him profusely for allowing me to come. As I shared my thoughts on everything I had seen that night, Larry walked up to us and asked if we were ready to go. Puzzled, I looked at my professor. He had given me a ride there. Hey, you want to have dinner with us? My professor asked me with a big smile on his face. We went out to a fancy Italian restaurant downtown. My palpable lameness mortified me. I in no way belonged in the same restaurant as these two men, let alone at the same table. I know I worked harder than anyone who had ever taken his class, if only to overcome my musical ignorance. Allowing me to sit in on the professor's rehearsal was a very cool thing to do. To take me out to dinner, 
one-on-one -on -one with someone regarded as the greatest of anything in jazz, was far too much. I didn't speak unless spoken to, because I knew any burning questions about music would only embarrass my professor. I kept my mouth full of table bread and listened intently as they both reminisced about jazz clubs on the East Coast. Larry cut his jazz teeth on the streets of New York and had played every night during the era the mob controlled the clubs. He told us stories of doing coke in the bathroom of Frank Sinatra's tour bus and being thrown out by one of his guards, afraid for their lives. That night, I realized jazz was far more rock and roll than it looked from the old black and white videos I'd seen of the jazz standards we were playing in class. My failures and battles with drug addiction now felt less shameful and more like I was a part of this culture. Suddenly, I felt like I belonged at their table.